0: Physically handling a helicopter has been, without any shadow of a doubt, my most clear and enduring spiritual teacher ever.
1: Welcome to My Way, a podcast that shares the stories of people who are doing life their way. Listen along as we explore what works, what doesn't, and the experience that happens no matter which path we choose. I'm your host, Sunny Collins. Thanks for listening. Sunny here. Welcome to episode 39 of My Way. My guest this week is Mike Bothma. He is a helicopter pilot and a firefighter, and he calls home a little cabin in the woods on Blue Hippo Farm just outside of Grayton. And this is where we had our conversation. Now I've split this conversation into two parts. In the first part, we talk about his history with flying, which has taken him from crop spraying in Southern Africa to conservation work in Northern Africa. We talk about flying on both a physical and spiritual level, and we deconstruct the roles of fighting fires from the air. In the second part, we'll get more into the details of the Greaton Fire, so you won't want to miss that. Please make sure that your seat belts are securely fastened and your seats and tray tables are in their upright and logged positions. Thank you for choosing Great and Air, and please enjoy the first half of this wild ride through the mind of a helicopter pilot.
0: Um, I, I'm Mike Bothman. I live on this farm, the Blue Hippo, here in Clough. and I am a helicopter pilot as well working in Bredaov on contract in the summer. Born in sixty-four in Johannesburg, and was yeah spent up until um, I matriculated, and when I could escape. <laughs> okay. So.
1: And. Talk about how you got into doing what it is that you do now.
0: Which part of what I do now? <laughs> Let's start
1: with fire.
0: Okay. Well, yeah, that came at, at um, in my flying career, which I, I started, I think, 27, 28 years ago. And flew all sorts of helicopters in various places, a lot in Cape Town, but also the rest of Africa. And eventually in 2011, I was uh, in Ethiopia in a, yeah, not a very pleasant environment, and I got offered this. I said they needed someone to help with the firefighting, which meant I'd be based in the country, so it was a very, yeah, moved then, 2011, yes. Okay,
1: so then your relationship with flying, right? yes that came first,
0: before yeah. the firefighting? Before firefighting, uh, yes. Okay. Yeah, um, that, that happened as one night, suddenly, <laughs> as a dream, actually. Sounds very of cliched and funny, but it was it was like that I woke my wife Simon up at the time and told her something was going to change, I was going to fly a helicopter. I was finishing my Master's in Anthropology and doing some teaching and tutoring there, but I had a dream that was not complicated, just very vivid, and so vivid that I knew that something that, that yeah, I thought I knew, I'm now not sure what I knew, but it, it said to me, you have to go and fly and fly a helicopter. So the very next day, I started training. I was 27. It's quite late in the game to start, wow. but I was possessed by this, um, yeah, drive to to do that. So I was a little disappointed when, actually, I couldn't. I was so convinced from that dream that it just, yeah, when hovering was a real humbling experience when I couldn't do it mm-hmm. because I kind of just that from that dream thought, I know this. So uh, yeah, then from there I had such grace and fortune that's very, very unusual in the industry to have spent about two hundred hours with an instructor doing crop spraying, which is very technically difficult and tricky flying and the whole economic model of it means that the the having two people is just doesn't doesn't make money. So this happened because the guy had an aneurysm and burst a blood vessel in his head um, while he, he had this, this company, but him he just himself in his helicopter. But that happened, he actually still took off. He was slurring his words and talking like he was drunk in the morning, so it already happened. And his mixer ran to the, to the farmer and said, the the, the boss is drunk, I've never seen him drink, but he's, he's talking utter nonsense and he's getting in the helicopter, we've got to stop him. And they rushed down and he took off and he flew to the next farm and he came into Mr. a missed approach. he came and landed. When they got the helicopter, he was unconscious and they cut his head open and said, you are, it's amazing, you are alive, but you're never going to fly again. He said, nonsense, you can't stop me, these farmers need me, I was so driven, he was not taking no an answer. They said, no, you... Anyway, long story short, they said he had to try and get someone with a license who would just sit next to him to make it legally correct and he could carry on doing the job. So he said, okay, find me the most stupid, naive, youngest, most inexperienced, the guy I can pay the least, that can, will just sit there and shut up. He was as grumpy as hell, and that was me. But he said, don't touch anything, I've got work to do later, when I'm calmed down and relaxed, I'll teach you a thing or two, but okay. He, then, he, they told him, but you're going to have, you're prone to epilepsy, that's a real problem, so you've got to take this medication, he said, I'm not going to take it and I'm not prone to nothing, leave me alone, I've got work to do, come on, fly with me, test me, do what you like, I'm fine, but he was driving his bike in, and he had a seizure and crashed so he realized immediately then, he had a big problem, he could not ever touch the controls again, because if that happened, he would kill us both. But now he had the simplest, stupid, most <laughs> ridiculously inexperienced pilot that had to do the flying. So he had this like attachment to me, he had to, like he wouldn't get out, he chain smoke like the whole time. <laughs> and he just chewed my ear off and taught me how to fly for 200 hours in the most incredible environment where you really are pushing a helicopter to its limits. and making yeah kind of from what really well the whole way the only way it makes money is if you're doing it in a very correct and efficient way because if you don't do your turns well it takes longer and you're charging per hectare and you're costing per hour so you got to do it well and if you don't you don't make money and he did it very well and he taught me what he knew but it's also very very dangerous if you don't and so that experience i had the benefit of him
1: Sorry. Oh, yeah. I, why would somebody choose to hire hire a helicopter versus a plane
0: um yeah helicopters cost more but uh they said sometimes the place that it is against the mountains the fields that it's difficult for and smaller fields are more difficult for aircraft but actually the real reason he, his business was so successful is because he understand this, He understood the psychology of the farmers. So the, the chemicals are very, very, very expensive. They're even more so than the, the flying, big time. So they're very precious and anxious and they lose control entirely with the fixed wing. It takes 2,000 liters, goes from an airfield. He gives them the spraying schedule. He doesn't know if they've quite got it right. He goes, all of these things make him very anxious. This guy, Guru, was he didn't even know why he was called a guru in the air force and he never like he was sold but anyway guru stuck so he would land on the farmer's front doorstep have that very personal interaction make them feel so included in in the decision and the way and the timing and how and, and so it was just close and personal so that's why he got the business and had a very good business.
1: So that was your start,
0: basically. So that was, yeah, my start. Um, I didn't actually enjoy it. I had a feeling that, that there was something not so good about the spraying and the chemicals. It was very bad. When I look back now, I'm, I'm horrified at what I didn't know and what happened. And that is why I didn't carry on. He had to stop. He said he can't, and he offered me the business, the clients, the customers, the helicopter, and everything. And I just said, mm, I had thank you, but no thanks. I can't do this. Then I did a whole lot of other things, and sort of like most helicopter pilots, you end up usually heading into Africa to do various strange and interesting, sometimes wonderful, sometimes dreadful things, for Most, but the hardest part of that is being away from home for long periods of time.
1: Can you talk about some of those highs and lows?
0: Well, so I think one of the highs must have been my um, in the corner of Ethiopia, Uganda, and Kenya, there is annually a migration of white eared cob. Do you know what a white eared cob is? I do. You do? Wow. You know
1: what? <laughs> know what that is? Because of somebody else that I interviewed for the podcast, my cock. He told me about that. And then He said it in the interview, and I was like, oh, uh huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. And I was like, is, t- is it an animal? <laughs>
0: Exactly that's what I thought I thought it's a fish. So, <laughs> right exactly. With, yes I was a bit right. confused and a million of them migrating across the plains. I was confused. So that's what I yeah. <laughs> right. So yeah it's uh, just a bit bigger than an impala and and uh, and across that place it does do that and it was also the last remaining corner of, of Ethiopia that had any natural forests left, so it was environmentally amazing. It was like a wetland and then this forest bush and, and plenty of game and it was being threatened at that time by the, I think the Malaysians wanted to come and palm oil so the British government were funding the university to make a, a movie about this migration to bring awareness to, and also to petition the government to to just have a look and try and stop that development and, and not drain the wetland and everything around it and trying to bring the attention to how unique it is. And yeah, it was amazing mind blowing to go because it had been in Ethiopia quite a while which is very beautiful but very, very, very deforested. and. Cultivated, it was unbelievable, like these peaks, right to the very peaks, everywhere it's just terraced and cultivated. It's also, though, uh, th- uh, one of the hottest places on earth and extremely humid, so it's about 42, 43 all the time, and sometimes more. <laughs> it, it's, yeah, it was just so yeah, raw and rich and alive with like this. In, uh, and the people that we were with were, they even had, they were trying to call the lions to get the footage. So we did, yeah, a lot of. Filming, uh, we had actually had a major, almost catastrophe. I, I've never been sworn at so much by an engineer over the phone <laughs> from Johannesburg as this crisis unfolded. That was really a crisis because they'd. What I did was because of the heat, and it was really, really intense. And I, so, yeah, it was like bordering sometimes on. I think, and we'd. I think we'd also all had some kind of uh, stomach bug. So I was not feeling. Hundreds, um, I can admit, but also the fact that it's 43 plus degrees in humid makes it very, very, very critical how you start a turbine engine. Because if, it, if, if there's not enough power in your battery and it's not quite, especially when it's hot, you can very quickly reach a temperature which can do damage to the turbine. So the manual says, and there's a light that'll come on. At that temperature, the light comes on. You've got a problem. You've got to report this thing and you've got to tell the engineers and they've got to come and open this thing to see if the damage has been done before you can fly again. So I'm in the furthest corner of Ethiopia. It's now two days before the, the government now come. We've done all the movie, done all the film, we've done everything. But now the actual roadshow, when they're bringing them here to show them this and do the presentation and need to fly them around, I've gone and cooked the engine. So they have two days to sort this problem out and i phoned the engineer. Now, actually, it was not a difficult choice for me at all. But when i thought through it there were so many things because i knew by the fact that from my own experience of what happens i knew from the rate of climb of that temperature and everything that i had only just touched that that light so the chances of any damage were absolutely minimal in my own heart of hearts i thought that's not a problem and i know this is going to cause unbelievable chaos for absolutely everyone and i also know how to switch that light off to take the problem away. So I could actually just take this problem away and carry on flying. Nobody needs to know, nobody needs to get upset, nobody needs to be stressed <laughs> and I'll be fine. But I didn't do that. I phoned him and said, mm, the light is on. And he just lasted with me, screamed and shouted like, don't you know how to start along and it's the easiest thing in the world. Well, you know, you can scream at me as much as you like and really, if I was cleverer, you're right, I could have just switched it off and avoided all of this. But unfortunately, I did the right thing and handed the problem to you and, well, fire me, do what you like, but this is what it is. So anyway, they, they went through utter, absolute, incredible things to get someone there, to open it up, to stick and say it's fine. When he got there, he said, oh my goodness. Well, you did no damage to this thing at all. But if you had gone flying again, within the next hour or so your engine would have died and that would have been you with the dignitaries <laughs> into oh, the bush. Wow. I went, oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. My companion, the helicopter, the consciousness of it in I've learned to understand, will have my back sometimes in incredible ways. Really? And exactly that happened again here after the fire in it broke so badly and not so badly like held itself together to get me safely on the ground and then announced everyone that they should be grateful that i'm alive me too especially and that for the next three days i would be off because there would be no helicopter it was broken so i had christmas eve christmas day and boxing day off when i would have otherwise been working uh then Again, in contrast to that was the oil exploration camp in Somaliland. And that was, yeah, just bizarre because the locals are Somalis. The geography says there's the big mountains, boom, you go there, and there's Somalis. all geographically obvious, and they call themselves Somalis, Somalis, that's Somalis. But this little piece of Somalis, Somalis Somaliland, belongs to Ethiopia, and then that's Somalia it's it's very like sort of deserty so actually where that line is and who knows but nobody knows so now here come the ethiopians who want to say we want to start claiming the oil that's underneath here and the crew we're bringing in are um israeli geologists so the israelis are coming into a, a very strong muslim somali area looking for the oil that they believe is theirs, like, what, and they're stealing it from them to give to the in cahoots with the Ethiopians. So it was a, sort of a inflammatory situation, which is why they wanted me to pick up the pieces and take them to the hospital every time thing went, went wrong. I myself, personally, I I never had any really horrific and terrible experiences. I know of many people who did, but all in all, my flying in Africa was a very plus. I absolutely loved, no matter what I was doing. Even uh, okay, that little. Yeah, there was no flying. I felt like I was just in the prison we did, and there was very, very, very little flying. But getting to that job and leaving that again was some of the most beautiful, like flying, crossing those mountains in Ethiopia. And all the places I've been are, are so, so, so rich and deep in me. They like I keep reminding myself and never to forget, even if I just sing it and say it all along, mm-hmm. just remember how, how, um, lucky, fortunate, be grateful, because so few people get to have an experience and absorb this perspective from where, where I have had the yeah. fortune of doing it. it. Well, everywhere has its gifts, but this particular environment is quite. It's not a large sector of, of existence that, that hover there. <laughs>
1: maybe talk a little bit about mm-hmm. your relationship with fire. Maybe I was I was gonna ask you kind of about your first memory of fire. And then yeah. how you were okay, this might. how that is connected to how you combine being a pilot. <laughs> okay. With fires.
0: Wow, okay, yeah. I think that's the the short answer to that is it's part of a grand mystery that is all of our lives beyond our imagination, that everything is is so intricately divinely inspired and designed that it's, and the more you become aware of that, the more it's like wow. But these things are exposed for me because they're very strong, elemental energies that kind of leave big imprints. So I can see quite clearly things that are connected that maybe if they were more subtle, I might have not noticed. And you just wonder, but I think everybody's life is the same, it's just. Mm. That's maybe because of my personality or my addiction to adrenaline or whatever. I, or, or somehow I don't it, it, that that just attracts us uh, some intensity to. Yeah.
1: And Have you always had that that sort of addiction to
0: adrenaline, or did it? Come I, of- I, I I don't I actually. I'm saying with tongue in cheek because. Mm. Uh, I think that's very reductionist to say it's, an, it's not an addiction to adrenaline. If I was addicted to adrenaline, cheapest I could just shoot it up. It would be a whole lot less Correct. effort than, than okay. trying to become a helicopter yeah, pilot. Sure. So, it's quite an expensive way to do yeah, so, No, it's, it's absolutely not that. It, that's actually just uh, sometimes a rather inconvenient problem that I would like to medicate against because it gets in the way. It makes me go rush a bit and then I'm not so calm and then anxiety comes. So I do enjoy it at the time, unnaturally, because of the capacities it brings out. Mm. But
1: I went off the path a bit. Yeah. Oh, you were, you were Talk talking about,
0: about your relationship with fire. <laughs> okay, so that was because maybe I was going to say this might be one of the things that I'll say, well, don't put that in because how fire started for me was my, as a young kid, and I think maybe over between on for Three years, my annual ritual, of setting the bush alight behind our house and waiting for the fire department to come and put it out and enjoying the show. So malicious ignition is something I'm guilty of. And okay, I so I was um, probably between six and eight at that time. So maybe. There was less responsibility or, or, a, or an ex- expectation of a capacity to think through the potential consequences. But also, in my defense, what I was doing was setting alight a, a one-acre piece of tall grass that dried out in the winter that was innately African instinct in me that thought this this stuff needs to burn out so the new stuff can come it happens every year and we don't want it to happen when we're not watching it and all sorts of shit can happen so let's just do it in a nice controlled way and do everyone a favor and burn it and it's so much fun mm-hmm. so <laughs> that's in my gut how i felt i didn't yeah. so i was just doing doing that but also loving that till i got caught and then it was not so so good well i didn't get again i didn't get caught red-handed it's very difficult to catch a malicious igniter how do you do it it's almost impossible. Mm. So, you can have the circumstantial evidence, which they did and took to my mother and said, This little shit is. is... Look, we know we're going to do it every year anyway, whether he does it or someone else, but <laughs> tell him not to. Right. <laughs> so, right. so, yeah. So, that's why I say, I think because of that, Destiny just said, well, maybe for the rest or a healthy chunk of your life, you're just going to have to put out fires. And I think that started way before I started putting water on fire in all sorts of other (laughs) fires that (laughs) seemed to unfold and evolve in my life. And even looking back now, I see with such humor in some ways my sort of masculine, linear, rational, logical mind that said i had a dream about flight that's made me think the clothes i put on it was a helicopter and i went off and flew a helicopter well great but you completely misinterpret that my friend it was all about this other flying that you're starting to get more acquainted with now in the realms of of spirits and spirit and matter and um, what spirituality means, what being in body means, what being out of a body means. These were things that were very very curious to me from a very early age. So I think the dream was more speaking to an out of body experience than actually handling (laughs) a helicopter. But in the magic of it, physically handling a helicopter has been without any shadow of a doubt my most clear and enduring spiritual teacher ever i actually it was so funny because someone mentioned it at a lecture we were giving on uh, on certain i think it was some anyway one of these funny courses that make us do to tick boxes, but he had an interesting thing, and he was going on and on and on about what we actually know about flight, which is the lift formula, so all the rest of everything else is utter nonsense and doesn't exist and the lift formula is where the only place we as rational logical thinkers can do anything with aeroplanes, which I completely got and understood and realized that that sort of was the backbone of what Spirit was saying to me about my existence on this planet. There are certain consensual vibrations around our planet that make it a a most brutal and unforgiving teacher if you don't pay attention to that. So the life force you can then give her is another matter altogether. But that you can bite to rip you to pieces with very little sense of feeling about the matter at all is a very good place to begin on earth, I feel. (laughs) because then you don't kind of float off into because yes we all want to meet divinity and the absolute and the oneness and have all sorts of ways to get there yeah I think it was important a while back to maybe just get a little bit in contact with that but we're here on earth so what are we going to do with that and if we can't walk steadily on earth and know what will burn our hands, or take our limbs off, or make us fall to the ground and explode in flames, then, yeah, I think then we're fundamentally disconnected and asking, putting way too much on spirit in our journey with it. We're not taking accountability for our existence in this body now, and so spirit will not meet us, will only take us so far anyway that's been my experience the more grounded I am the more magical things I start to see
1: so do you do you feel like ironically I guess flying has made you more grounded
0: and more yeah paradoxically and ironically more grounded absolutely mm. for sure for sure because my nature is to not be so I uh, kind of like I said, I had a dream and I thought I was going to just jump in this thing and fly. I didn't want that instructor and his bills and costs and all of it, none of that. Mm-hmm. So that, that's that's a part of the part of me that that dreams, dreams, dreams. And in my younger years, definitely so many of those things really manifest. But the, the aha moment was when they started to manifest what real oh shit now look what i've got and i better pay attention otherwise this boat's going to sink or this airplane's going to crash and then we've got shirt i like bitten off more than i can chew it's right. not my nature i better get myself organized i better remember figures and not pretend that i'm just pretend and you know i have to really 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 pay attention to parts of me that i struggle with so it mm-hmm. confronted me with my own shadow actually yeah. and having to work with type personalities that are so different to to me, but have qualities that are so lacking in me that I needed to learn a lot about.
1: I was curious to know a little bit more about the terms spotters, bombers, and pilots, so I asked. Um, okay, so then the spotter. Yeah. Explain what the spotter does, and if they like, what what kind of machine they fly. Yeah. Is it different than. The
0: so a spotter flies in a fixed wing, usually a Cessna small four four seater and their task is command and control communi- and communication so they're s- uh, above us looking down from higher circling for hours and hours and hours and hours and hours i could never ever do it i would be sick and mad and crazy in a day and give up but they do that they do so well and they also sometimes they have far worse conditions to deal with than we do as helicopters so the local conditions on a mountain, especially where all of this rubbish happens, is, is very unpredictable. Actually, no, it's not unpredictable. It's very simple, really, but it's fluid motion. So for me, if you, uh, if you understand that and you kind of then start to visualize it, it's like watching water flow over rocks. So you can then start to extrapolate exactly where the rapids are where those nice, beautiful, standing waves are, and where to go and where not to go. Mm. So, I think it takes a certain sense of that visualization, and also maybe just a bit of stupidity because somehow, even if knowing that, you still got to get from A to B. So, I use that a lot to say, No, I'm happier. I don't follow this tendency when you're young and flying out of the waterfront, you're terrified of the southeast as you should be three and a half thousand feet offshore as far as you can sit in that smooth air and enjoy that view and you do that over and over again and you go amazing. But then one day I saw the moisture and I started to see those waves and I thought, hang on that's probably there all the time. I see this barrel that's going all the way down the Twelve Apostles from Little Lion's Head to Llandudno and it's, it is really like a standing huge hollow barrel of a wave that's standing there today because I can see it like the most perfect wave is there the whole length of the 12 apostles so i think that's where we must go so wow. <laughs> dive right in and right on the edge found that thing and it was exactly that it was like i could let drop all the power the, 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 the rising air it was like the water just lifting the helicopter just went into neutral i was trying to descend and i was still going up so i put the nose down and accelerate and i just tucked in and rode throttle down the Twelve Apostles in the smoothest air imaginable while everybody else thought I was a suicidal maniac stupid idiot that shouldn't be doing that sort of thing. Now, years later you go, well, when the fire burns which are the idiots that are now going to go and and put the water not there in that nice barrel that Mike was showing off in but down there underneath where he's he's not interested in going. So, So that was like, okay. Cool. I learned that about the mountain and I really got to know Table Mountain well, especially if you lot around there, but also just generally. So that brings me back to in the beginning I told you to stay high and out of it. As you get to know fluids and mountains, you start to trust yourself a bit and you go places that 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 from a distance look crazy, but you know it's not like that today. It's like this. It's mm-hmm. okay. Tomorrow it's one degree difference in when it'll be different. Mm-hmm. But it's okay. We're here, let's work. So The spiders don't have that luxury, they can't maneuver low level and do anything like we can do. So they've got to be up there, and sometimes up there, then those things are just unavoidable. That's exactly what happened here on the day of this fire. It was impossible for Luzon to fly up there. She just, it, it was nonsensical, turbulent, dangerous, and she couldn't really help me. She couldn't even see me most of the time, so she stood down quite quickly. And went home. Because I remember was,
1: seeing the spotter plane, but then, and then nothing gone. after that. Yeah,
0: yeah, but that was the right and, and correct call to make. And then there are changes in our protocol that, ha- that allow us to carry on the rule. basic rule is you don't fly if there's not a spotter, they're looking after you. But there are often times when that becomes a viable, it's not that dangerous. So the rule is then I have to have communication and visual contact with someone on the ground who can then keep an eye on me and know if I go down where I went, Mm -hmm. basically. So I had that and carried on without it. But yeah, the spotters sometimes have a little aircraft in turbulence with those, I always tease them and say, uh, fixed-wing is like a birdless rigor mortis, that's probably, you know, it's like, no wonder, when you're flying, it's like but a real bird, is a little bit more like a helicopter's blaze that also do that. They flap, they absorb so much more of the, the turbulence, so the whole body doesn't jerk yeah. so much, and that's the problem they have.
1: So then spotters,
0: bombers. And then the bombers are very big. We, we have air tractors that take about 3,000 liters of water, and they're fast and furious. They're not so fantastic in the mountains and kind of in the same way I suppose in the Air Force there's always this banter and competition between helicopter pilots and the jet pilots. Yeah, the helicopters say we're more effective than you guys, they say, oh rubbish, we are. But actually they're both exceptional tools and in certain conditions for sure bomber, when it's open enough for them to get in, they are so effective and with us do very well because they do a long line, but their problem is that they take much longer to refill. So then we stitch on and keep what they've done going with much faster turnaround time, and the whole thing is very effective then. So in some of those bigger fires, especially up in the north parts of the country with plantations and those things, those bombers are there in Nelsprate. When when there's a fire and the alarm goes, they automatically dispatch, I think, something like three or four bombers to start rolling down. Even if it's a teeny-weeny little fire, those guys go with everything they've got in those big aircraft and put a lot of water on it. That's how they do it. So then, and then, then you. Then helicopter pilots. I guess there are about there are about 15 of us okay. in this company, and probably countrywide, mm, maybe double that or less. But and less actually, I would say, actively flying helicopters on fires, somewhere between 20 and 30.
1: And a high risk occupation. Um. This concludes the first half of our flight with Mike Bothma. Join us next week as we go into more detail about his experience in working on the Greaton Fire at the end of 2019. Please take a moment to rate the podcast on iTunes. This is a huge help for the podcast, and it only takes a moment to scroll down and click the number of stars you think it deserves. I think five is perfect. (laughs) Don't forget to subscribe, share, and follow at Podcast Cowgirl on Facebook and Instagram for photos and updates. See you next time.